wonder if you ever feel the need to hide who you are or what you're feeling. Last week, recruitment agency Hayes, they uh, reported that according to their research, about 40% of employees feel the need to hide aspects of who they are when they're at work. Out of fear of being judged or rejected or maybe not getting the promotion that they're looking for, they don't feel comfortable expressing their authentic self. They feel that they just can't be themselves in the workplace. Now, maybe at work, it's not a big problem if we have to put on a kind of professional persona and do the work that you're hired to do. But doing that in our everyday lives can create real problems. It's exhausting trying to hide who you really are. It can reinforce feelings of insignificance, create isolation and anxiety, and really build barriers to real relationships with people. So we all need places where we can just be ourselves. Where we're comfortable talking about what we're going through, expressing what we're really feeling. Especially if we're going through times of grief or suffering. We need to be able to share it. And if we can't share it, it can just add to that crushing sense of loneliness that suffering often produces. Now sadly in church, we've often not been great at that. A Christian book about depression and anxiety is called this, I'm not supposed to feel like this. Its authors talk about the pressure that people can feel. This is what they say. It is bad enough that I feel low or anxious, but on top of that, I feel guilty. For I ought ought not to feel low as a Christian. I feel I ought to be able to cast my cares on Him, for He cares for me. And yet somehow, I can't. Should we as Christians have to hide our struggles? Should faithful followers of Jesus have to pretend that they're always okay? Well, Job didn't think so. He was an incredible man of faith. When he lost his his wealth and status and reputation and family and health, he worshipped the Lord. But he was also able to express what was on his heart. So after sitting in silence with his friends for seven days, he poured out his heart in an incredibly moving and authentic poem. So we're going to look at that this morning. It's job chapter 3. Roz is going to come up and she's going to read the first ten verses of that. Thank you, Roz. And then we're going to look through some of the others as well. So if you have a Bible, please keep it open as we work through this chapter. But Roz, come and read it to us, the start of that chapter. Thank you.
After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish and the night that said I've always conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night, may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain, and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me, to hide trouble from my eyes. Thank you very much, Ross. Satan thought that Job was only committed to God as far as God would look after him. He believed that if God took away all of those blessings that he'd given to Job, he will surely curse you to your face. But despite all that Job experienced under Satan's attack, and despite the pressure even from people like his wife, Job refused to curse God. He did not sin in what he said. It says in Job chapter 2 verse 10. Job didn't sin, but he did struggle. He didn't curse God, but he did curse the day of his birth in a really heartbreaking way. Verse 4, May the day of my birth perish, and the night it was said, A boy is born. Or in some other translations, a boy. A boy is conceived. Now, this is obviously Hebrew poetry. And so we might not understand all the imagery and all the the word pictures that Job used. But I think the main impact of what Job was saying here is really clear. Job was suffering so much that he wished that he could go back in time and wipe out Two days from history. First of all, the day of his birth. May it turn to darkness. May God not care above, not care about it. May no light shine upon it. On the first day of creation, God spoke light into the darkness. But now Job wanted to do the the opposite. He wanted God to undo this. And plunge the day of his birth into darkness. Banish it into oblivion. He also wanted to do that to the night of his conception. Verse 6, May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered into any of the months. He wanted it wiped from the calendar. Make it barren. Make it unfruitful. Swallowed up by this creature, this mythical creature called the Viathan so that this morning would never arrive. And of course, Job isn't 
suggesting that any of that could actually happen. But it's just how he feels, how he felt at that time. He felt that he would love those days to be wiped out, for it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. He hated those days because they resulted in his birth. And in that moment, he wished that he'd never been born. That's what he longed for. That's what his heart cried out for. Life was so terrible. His pain was so deep. His suffering was so great that he wished he'd never existed. That's uncomfortable reading, isn't it? I think many of us would have preferred if Job's book had finished in chapter 2. Because at the end of chapter 2, we are just impressed by Job's faithfulness to God. The things that he said, like in the middle of the suffering, he said, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. You can get excited about those kind of words. They are impressive. They are inspiring. It's a mind-blowing declaration of faith in the midst of overwhelming suffering. And yet, that is not the full picture of the life of faith. God doesn't expect us to stoically face every trouble without emotion. He doesn't call us to be unmoved or unaffected by hurt or pain. He doesn't want us to put plastic smiles on our faces and just sing praises every day. That's not real life. That's not authentic life. And neither is it a biblical life. Throughout the Bible, we see men and women of God, people who are trusting in God, struggle and suffer. Even people who have incredible ministries, like the prophet Jeremiah. He struggled so much with his ministry that he also declared, Cursed be the day that I was born. May the day my mother bore me, bore me not be blessed. So this is not the biblical view of the life of faith that we see throughout the scriptures. But even more importantly, an unmoved, unaffected life isn't just an unbiblical life, it's an unchrist-like life. Because Jesus, the perfect man, the one who lived in a perfect relationship with his Father, He also struggled. At Lazarus' grave, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. In the upper room, as he revealed to his disciples that one of them was going to betray him, Jesus was troubled in spirit. 
In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was in anguish. So no wonder the prophet Isaiah wrote about the Lord. That he was a man of sorrows. And familiar with suffering. Now this does not mean that if you feel great this morning. If you just bounded out of bed with a big huge smile on your face. And ran to church with all enthusiasm and joy. If you did that great, wonderful. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course not. It's not saying that you have to feel like Job this morning. But it does mean that it's okay to be honest about our struggles. God has made us to be emotional beings. And when we go through difficult times, it's okay for us to find that incredibly difficult. We can be faithful and authentic. It's okay not to be okay. It's also important for us to share how we feel. Even when it's messy. In the first section of this, this, this poem, Job wished he'd never been born. The next part of this chapter is even more distressing. Because he wondered why he hadn't died at birth. We're going to read it now. Verse 11. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and counsellors of the earth who built for themselves places now lying in ruins. With rulers who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden in the ground like a stillborn child? Like an infant who never saw the light of day. There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the wicked, the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease, and no longer hear the slave driver shout. The small and great are there, and the slave is freed from his master. Job was so committed to God that he would never think of taking his own life. But he did wish he was dead. He did wish he had died. That's because verse 13, for now, he says, I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. Job's life was so unbearable at this moment that he envied those who had died. From his perspective, they were at peace. That in the grave, the the rulers and officials, the wicked and the weary, the, the captives and the slave drivers, the small and the great, they're all just at rest. So that if he was dead, all his suffering suffering would be over. That's how he was thinking. Now, of course, he was not thinking clearly about this. He was not wishing upon his mum 
the, the sorrow and the tragedy of a stillbirth. He wouldn't be that cruel. And neither was he trying to teach everyone who was listening to him the reality of what comes after life. This is a, a very early book in the Bible. And so Job didn't have the benefit of the fuller revelation from, of, of the Bible books of, of what, uh, what life after death is really like. So Job in this moment wasn't thinking about the reality of heaven and hell. Of God's judgment on sinners. Or God's salvation of saints. He wasn't thinking about that. As someone who was just drowning in his pain, he was just pouring out his heart to his friends. He was telling them just how he felt, how low he was in a really raw and honest way. And that's okay. In fact, that's vital. God has given us gifts of tears and words. So we can express how we feel. So we can share it with others. The Psalms do this in an extraordinary way. Seemingly, 65 of the 150 Psalms that are in the Bible, 65 of them, about 40% of them, are classed as Psalms of Lament. You might say, what's a lament? Well, a lament is a prayer that expresses sorrow or pain, or confusion. Someone has described it as a a prayer of pain that leads to trust. And some of these psalms, they start with hopelessness, but they lead to a declaration of faith. By by expressing his faith, and uh, expressing his pain and his sorrow, he, he turns his eyes upon God and he expresses that trust in the Lord. And ends on a kind of positive note. But some of the Psalms in the Bible don't do that. Psalm 88, for example. It ends right in the middle of despair. This is what it says. It says, the darkness is my closest friend. Full stop. That's it. Because that's how he felt at that time. And yet these Psalms have been preserved in the Bible for us. For us to use in our times of struggle. To help us to express our pain when we run out of words to say. To teach us that it's okay for us to share our pain with each other. So that as Paul said to the Galatians, we can carry each other's burdens or even more incredibly so that we can share our pain with our heavenly father Psalm 62 says trust in him at all times O people pour out your hearts to him for God is our refuge and Jesus again showed us the importance of this Throughout his life, he was willing to share his feelings, his struggles. At Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept. 
In Gethsemane, he told his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And at the end of three hours of darkness on the cross, Jesus quoted from one of those Psalms of lament, Psalm 22, when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And like Jesus on the cross, Job also had questions of why. We've already read three of them in the, in the second section. But the last section, is two more. Let's just read the last few verses of this chapter. Job chapter 3, verse 20. Why is light given to those in misery? And life to the bitter of soul? To those who long for death that does not come. Who search for it more than for hidden treasure. Who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing comes to me instead of food, and my groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace. No quietness. I have no rest. But only turmoil. I think we're getting to the deepest struggle for Job. Of course he struggled with grief and the pain of what he was going through. But deeper than that, he struggled with the why. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? Job knew who gave light and life. As we've seen already in this chapter, in this this book, Job is absolutely convinced that God is sovereign in the world and everything ultimately comes from Him. But why would God give life to those who are suffering so much? Job, he was living his worst nightmare, he says in verse 25. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. And as a result, the quality of life that he was experiencing now was rock bottom. He says, I have no peace, no quietness, no rest, only turmoil. So why would God keep alive those like Job who were overwhelmed in sorrow and who just wanted to die? Why would he hedge Job in? Not in that blessing like Satan accused, but hedged in in the the continual struggle of life. When all he wanted to do was escape. We'll see next week that Job's friends thought they knew why. They thought they had the answer as to the why. Thankfully, Job rejected that because they were wrong. But that left Job with that question, still asking why. And he had no answer. And even as we get near to the end of the book, he still doesn't have an answer. But in asking, Job expressed our struggle too. Because when hardship comes, 
we are often left with so many questions. God, why me? God, why is this happening? Where are you? Why don't you step in to heal and to help? How long will you hide yourself? The Bible is full of those sorts of questions. Psalmists, prophets, ask them. Psalm 22, the one that Jesus quoted from on the cross, goes on to say, Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the the words of my groaning. So what does this tell us? Well, it tells us that to ask those sorts of questions is not always an act of rebellion. Instead, those questions are often questions of faith. They are actually the struggles of belief. Because those who claim that the universe is just the result of random and meaningless events over billions of years, well, well, they don't need to ask those questions. I think probably some of them do, but they don't need to. That question is inconsistent with their worldview. In In a mindless universe, there are no reasons for why. Because there's no purpose and no reason to this world if that's what you believe. But we believe that God is the sovereign in this world. We believe that He is in control. We believe that He is good and that He works out everything in conformity with His will. And so we struggle when the things that we experience in life or the things that we see in life don't seem to be consistent with this understanding of God being good and holy and powerful and wonderful. We try to make sense of it all. We're trying to bring those two things together in our minds. This was Job's struggle. And there are no easy answers to this. There's no simple answers to this. But Job asked those difficult questions without cursing God, without sinning in what he was saying, without rebelling against him. And so we don't need to be afraid of those questions. We don't need to hide from them. Having questions and having faith are, are not contradictory. They're not opposites. It's okay to ask questions. And in our struggles, we can bring all of our questions to God. The chapter 3 finishes that way doesn't bring any resolution to us. But of course, that's not the end of the story. Yes, it was an incredibly dark night for Job. And we mustn't just kind of hurriedly skip over that to to the good bits. But this isn't the last word on Job's suffering. Eventually, God did resolve this for Job. 
We eventually get there. Chapter 42. There's a day of healing and restoration. A day of comfort. A day of joy again for Job. And that was the same for Jesus. On the darkest day, when literally the day turned to night, it seemed that darkness had won. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But that was not the last word. On the third day, the triumphant message of the angels was, He is not here. He has risen. Just as He said. Jesus' suffering was over. He had risen from the dead. But even more than that, he had defeated death itself. Suffering had been redeemed. What looked like pointless and empty, the agony of a perfectly innocent man, was revealed to be the greatest of all acts of love and mercy. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So this morning, if we put our faith in Jesus, if we accept Him as the forgiver of our sins and the leader of our lives, then suffering and death will not have the final say. Because the sky, not the grave, is our goal. Yes, we might face trouble, or persecution, or illness, or sorrow, or death. But as Paul said in Romans chapter 8, in all those things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. That's because nothing and no no one can ever separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not the thing that we fear the most. Not the thing that we dread the most. Not the thing that we're going through right now. Not the thing that we might go through in the future. Nothing and no one can ever separate us from His love. He is with us today. And one day we will be with him forever. It doesn't mean it's wrong to grieve. But it does mean that we don't need to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. So we don't need to hide. We don't need to hide our pain. It's okay not to be okay. Faithfulness doesn't mean that we need to go through life unmoved and unaffected. And it is good to share our struggles. We need to lament. We need to get into those psalms and use them in the way that God gave us them so that we can express our prayers of pain that lead to trust. And we don't need to be afraid of our questions. Even the questions that we don't have any answers to yet. We can still ask them. But this morning we can 
hold on to the reality that in Christ we have a great hope. A hope that even the darkest of days cannot destroy. That even the darkest of nights cannot.